a new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hi folks, how are you? Welcome along to this week's soundtracking podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Also, thanks very much for all your lovely comments on our little YouTube show that I've been putting up uh, during lockdown, kind of sporadically as and when we've got guests. Some guests that feature on this podcast, but then there's also a whole host of additional guests as well. And it's been really lovely to see and hear your responses to that as well. So much appreciated. Now, as promised, we've got another double header for you on this latest episode of Soundtracking as we span the globe with an Australian and an American. First up, uh, Ben Frost, a composer of extraordinary versatility. And we spent much of the time discussing his scores for the mind-bending German Netflix sci-fi thriller mystery time travel drama Dark. <clears throat> yes, his work on all three seasons is available to buy right now at invader.co.uk. So get ordered online at the first opportunity. It would be a fabulous Christmas present for anybody who likes to collect vinyl. So Ben's up first. Then we bring you Rada Blank discussing the 40-year-old version, a film she wrote, directed and stars in. Blurring the lines between reality and fiction, it tells the story of, you guessed it, Rada, a down-on-our-luck playwright moving between the worlds of theatre and hip-hop. It is fantastic and available on Netflix now, as is Dark. Now, we'll begin with Ben and a cue from Dark Cycle 3, which happens to have been released by Invader on physical formats as of today. It's called, now pardon my pronunciation, <clears throat> Nicht Deine Marta. Thank you so much for coming on uh, to Soundtrack and to talk. Well, I mean, there's a lot of things that we can talk about, but if you don't mind, I would like to start with Dark. Sure. I mean, it's a beast. <laughs> 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 I mean, it's so hard to talk about the music as a, a whole thing because it's so 
intricate and delicate and powerful. It's so many things. But I wanted to ask, go back to the start, really, and talk to me about how you came to be involved and what, for you, as a creative, was the attraction of being part of this production, I guess. Okay, so, I mean, I think... Basically, where it started for me was I, 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 you know, my manager called me and and, and said, "Oh, there's there's these these Germans that want to talk to you about a, a series. There's something about time travel. It's in German. Yeah, definitely had my interest from from day one. And I, I we had a, a couple of phone calls and and they explained they were fans of my work from previous things I'd done. Uh, so you know, it, I I just went to Berlin to meet with them. And by that stage, they already had shot quite a lot of the of the series. In yeah. fact, I think they were pretty close to finishing it, actually, of series one. Um, and they they tempt a bunch of my music into, you know, into some scenes. And you know, I mean, I could see it was working. But m- more than that, it was just very. It had an aesthetic that really appealed to me as yeah. a kind of quietness to the whole thing, and a um, and the the cinematography is just absolutely stunning so yeah i mean it it kind of ticked all the boxes for me and you know that said i mean it was very much a kind of a you know a sort of let's try this and and see see how we go so i i basically i said i would i would go and um and just write a write a bunch of music and and so i did yeah uh and i sort of sent that over and i mean with yeah it, it, it's surprising how close to the mark it kind of got in that first reaction just the idea. I really wasn't writing the picture. I mean, I guess that's kind of a that's a recurring theme for me. I, I, I don't really do that. you write into script because it's not an easy show to explain if you know someone says to you what's dark about and you go oh okay it kind of you know it's it's quite complicated to to discuss or to explain because you don't want to give anything away really as well you know it's about the experience of the show I think as well as the the entertainment of it almost Mm. like honestly I I mean I, I had sort of vague ideas about the sort of overall structure of the thing but really what i was kind of focusing in on was this sort of i don't know like a a kind of a just a feeling about it you know zeroing in on i think this idea of uh of loss and of you know the, the this idea of like losing your kids i think irrespective of how that occurs uh felt like a really good way into it the nature of family 
the kind of um, yeah, I guess the the sort of the inherent kind of tragedy of of that whole sort of story, irrespective of the kind of sort of more sci-fi machinations that, that sort of underpin the the series as a whole. The fundamentals of the thing is is a is a family tragedy. It's a you know the human emotion side of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think that that's kind of where I was aiming from the outset and trying to sort of like just put all the other shit aside in a way, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. Like I was listening back to some of the, the score from the first two se- seasons as well. And there's a, I think it's the second track on the season one, Ein Mensch, I think it's called. And just the journey that the music takes in terms of this kind of, you know, it's almost like a heartbeat start, this like pulsation that then kind of goes into sort of full almost orchestration. And it's just, that's the wonderful thing I think about parts of the music and throughout the three seasons is the journey that the music has almost in a way is so beautiful. And it feels like that you were given a lot of space and time to work with that as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the negative space, I think, is kind of a, you know, I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying this, but Bo is is uh, the director. He's he's he really loves music, and I mean, I'm I'm very uh, lucky that you know he he loves my music, and you know the kind of recurring theme of of the whole process of of making dark was was me fighting for the absence of score because it was just wall to wall music, and the the reasons for that were often just as simple as he wanted an uneasiness or he wanted a, a, a mood to underpin a long sequence. So my kind of solution, I guess, to that, my sort of fight back against that was to sort of make these, make a lot of pieces of music that really have this sort of, uh, sort of verticality to them where it's, uh, there's music, but then there's, there's huge breaths in between yeah. phrases. So it's it's enough to placate him <laughs> and sort of go, okay, yeah, the score there, you know, there's, yeah. a, there's a reverb tail there that's, you know, that's 20 seconds long. Yeah. So that you have the footprint of music, but the score itself is actually weirdly sort of silent in yeah. a lot of in a lot of places. And so I think that that kind of that approach really helped a lot yeah. in order to do what I wanted it to do, which is to give it breath.
you know, as I'm sure you've you've had this discussion with with any number of of my peers that you've you've spoken to. When there's music everywhere, there's music nowhere. You know, it's it it starts to lose meaning the more you use it. So if you want it to keep kind of hitting uh, and 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 sort of contributing to to the storytelling, it needs to not be there sometimes as well. It's really interesting you say that because it's amazing the amount of composers who say they encourage their directors to do that. It's not the director going, I need to, I need, it's the composer going, yeah. you need to take some of my music out here, which yeah. is, is, is incredible, really. It's like, yeah. you know, it's sort of, but it is that thing where you're, you know, you, you're, you're part of a, a team of collaborators who are facilitating the narrative and the story. It's, it's not a, you know, it's, it's, it's not a vanity project and it's not a project purely about your craft. It's about this whole collaboration of crafts, really, for it to, mm. To make it the best thing that it can possibly be, and I mean the the, the sound design in, in dark as well is really pretty special. So there was a lot of a lot of the time I was just kind of hearing, you know, what was what was kind of coming back there and, and going, okay, that's just turn that up, you know, fuck the music off and and just <laughs> let's let's hear that, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean you're right, it is a it is a collaboration for sure. is it working across something that's you know that stretches over three seasons 26 episodes is that i think over those three seasons is that is the first time you've done something that that's over that length of time over that amount of episodes really i mean no uh no, i i did um i mean fortitude was was oh, was so good. you know three three seasons as well it's it's weird actually i i never i never really imagined when i started working in in, in film music that that would sort of end up being my sort of path through it would be working in this sort of uh long form storytelling yeah episodic thing but it, in a weird way it actually i think it, it's actually suits me very well because uh, i think the nature of my music is a, is a, in some ways episodic also mm -hmm. there's a lot of like repetitive themes like uh things that are sort of families of music uh, the way the way tends things tend to, I, I become really quite fascinated, if not sort of obsessed with certain combinations of things, whether that's uh, particular instrumentation or or you know a pattern of of melody versus harmony or or you know rhythmic ideas and those things. Are, I they tend to sort of spool out into these sort of studies almost you know uh where it, it it's it's just repetitions on a theme and so 
working in a, a sort of a finite feature film situation, you know, there's only ever going to be the the one car chase, the one love scene. The, do you yeah. know what I mean? There, there, yeah, there, yeah. There's these sort of finite examples of, of this thing. Whereas, you know, in a in a series like Dark, if if it doesn't work in that particular circumstance, there's a very good chance it belongs actually somewhere else. And 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 if there is a kind of a a seed that's being planted here, you know, being able to kind of plant that seed, but know that it's not going to pay off for 13 episodes. It makes a lot of sense to me. And I actually really, I, I really enjoy that kind of um, Easter egg kind of approach to, to it as well. Particularly with this show in terms of the kind of, you know, the sort of the, the sort of time travel element to it and the themes for characters and the fact that you have almost like the three stages of life that, you know, it's kind of, there is a lot, there is so much in there, you know, when you, when you kind of break it down in terms of, I can't imagine where you start, you know, when you've got a whole new set of scripts for season three, where did you start? Um, and do you, do you have a kind of go-to in terms of, do you start thinking about melody? Do you start thinking about sound? Do you, I mean, what's the, for, for season three, for example, what was the starting point? Well, the, I guess the, the starting point for me has always been so Yantia, who who's the writer, the genius behind the whole thing. <laughs> I sort of force her with much protest to to sit down with me, and I get this one kind of uninterrupted sort of hour long conversation with her, where I can sit there and I go, okay, what happens? <laughs> and then she'll just start telling me the story, and I can ask all my questions about it, and she'll miss things and then we'll go back to those and and it's a real kind of like explain it to me like I'm five kind of moment like I, I can ask all the dumb questions and you know okay so she's actually the sister of you know I can, I can do all the things that people do in the chat rooms and you know I, yeah. I, I get this kind of uninterrupted sort of solo time with her with the, straight um, from the horse's mouth so to speak as well straight yeah. from straight from the horse's mouth and 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 that for me honestly is the most important thing like and that is the most formative moment because it's in that moment actually that I can start to imagine these spaces in my mind you know and I can start to imagine okay what that might actually physically look like and I can imagine you know because by season three I, I know who who's playing who and you know, like, for example, you know, she would explain to me this, 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 there's this character, this multi-generational assassin character. It's like, it's such a crazy idea. Um, so there's the same person and it's going around knocking everyone off and, but there's three generations of him and they all move as a group. And so, you know, I mean, obviously in the end, I see what that looks like, but actually the idea of it in my head, it starts kind of, I can start to sort of play with that idea and 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 think about think about it and in 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 a, in a strange way it's sort of I probably end up sort of going off on a bit of a tangent myself but then I'll follow that tangent and I'll start writing based on an idea like that and I'll, I'll just kind of play around and and sort of feel out what that might be mm -hmm. and I'll essentially just try and knock out as as much material as I can very quickly and sort of fill up a fill up a folder and just and then I'll just throw it over to to Bo and you know him and his editors will just start working with that
at that point it's you know some of some of the some of the material is sounds good but then there's you know a bunch of midi bullshit in there as well that he sort of has to imagine his way through and then we just start seeing what sticks and you know and sometimes i nail it like sometimes I'll, like I, I hit the nail on the head and it'll be like okay the thing that i wrote that for totally works but i very deliberately even from the very very beginning i very deliberately gave a naming a naming structure to pieces of music that is very obscure and kind of abstract yeah so i would never call something Claudia's theme or, or, or whatever because then it's kind of prescribing exactly what that piece of music is for um, and we, ha we had a number of a number of instances where I've written something I know what it's for but I've yeah. given it to I've given it to Bo and he's kind of gone I fucking love this for blah 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 and I'm like <laughs> okay so then there comes this point where what I've kind of intended or where I've sort of gone with my script, you know, which is to say that that original conversation and that that goes off piece and, and becomes this this thing of its own. But then it kind of slams back into what they're doing. And I don't know, I, I would like to think that the weird friction that exists between those things um, and the way they interpret what I'm doing, that's kind of where it gets interesting. Yeah. And then I can take that back mm -hmm. and go, OK, well, they actually like this, but in a completely different way to I'd imagine. And then I can sort of work on it to that end just make it better and then the titles that they end up having like on the you know on the on the score mm -hmm. are those renamed mm -hmm. by the or, or are those the names that you came up with i came up with those yeah amazing um do you yeah. speak german as well then my, well my partner is german um so uh yeah i i have a uh, an in-house translator um, <laughs> to, for that. My, my German is actually a lot better than it used to be. No coincidence, but yeah, no, it's it's still pretty shit, honestly. It's funny because when I way back when I first started watching it, I started watching it with the English dub, and I couldn't I couldn't connect with it. No, and it was my awful. husband Tom said you have to watch it with the subtitles, and I was like, and then straight away. It was like, vroom, I was in. Yeah, totally. So if anyone's listening and they've done the same thing as me and they, they, they go back and do it with the, 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 yeah, absolutely. What I think is actually really interesting in, in that regard is the, the way that it kind of forces people to focus on it. You can't watch Dark with a phone in your hand, you know? Exactly. It's it. And it's, it's, it's really interesting, yeah. And anything to encourage you not to do that is brilliant. Yeah, I agree anything it's almost like i wish i had like a you know like those things you go through the airport the the, the scanners i kind of wish i had one of them going in my living room that was like <laughs> so you're not allowed to mobile phone in there can you can yeah. hand it over for the duration of your time in this room please right. i mean that's yeah. i think i need to develop something like that for at home yeah <laughs> the scores are amazing i love the the also how the, i keep calling them seasons but how for dark it's cycles like cycle one two and three the, the albums are beautiful pieces of art in their own right. And I think that not every score has the ability to have a life outside of the the production, so to speak. But I think that your scores for, for Dark have this wonderful, they have their own, you know, they have their own secret party over here kind of thing because they're beautiful things to listen to, to put on, to listen from start to finish. They really are. Thank you very much. Look, I mean, I, I, I spent a lot of time on on that aspect of it i mean i you know putting together a, an album is it, it's still really important to me like irrespective of the fact that nobody gives a shit anymore and just listens to playlists on 
Spotify or whatever, but like the, the, the sequencing and the, the way things kind of fold together yeah, is really important to me. And, and I have spent a lot of time on that, but then also, you know, I mean, just being able to work with, with the guys at Invader and they're just so like, you know, they, they really, I think, you know, Reg, Reg and Jeff are kind of as particular as I am and, and really want to get things perfect. And yeah, there's, there's, there's no compromising on that, on that side of it. So yeah, it, so it's a labor, labor of love, you know. They really care. Um, Absolutely. In terms of the world of, of soundtracks as well, it's so lovely to see the kind of dedication that goes into to trying to really, you know, keep the kind of cogs of that turning as well and for it to be recognised for, for, for what it is and how important it is to, you know, whether it be a TV show or a film or a short or, or whatever that is, it's kind of, mm. it's a level playing field for all of it mm. for them. You know, everything yeah. deserves its place, which I think is just absolutely wonderful. For yeah. you, in terms of this fantastic and really kind of brilliant career that you have in terms of, you know, whether it's writing an opera or whether it's writing the score for Dark or whether it's rescoring Tarkovsky's Solaris for, a, you know, a particular project. How do you navigate what it is that you do next? Are you seeking certain things out that you want to work on? Obviously, you know, you get you get approach to do something like dark and then that goes on for three seasons but for you as a creative and as a composer and a musician um what is it that 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 sort of makes that decision for the next thing that you do it's a good question <laughs> uh i think probably a lot of it especially in these these situations where it is so much about collaboration it, it it's about people you know it's about kind of a resonance with people I think if there is a, a sort of a, a common thread in there, you know, you know, Bo, Bo and I, we can, we can really relate to one another. And I, I, you know, we're, we're very different people, but um, I really, I, I, I understand him, you know, and I have a lot of respect for him. He's, he's totally uncompromising and just one-eyed about everything, but he's also, he's a, he's also a collaborator. He's, he's really, He's not department hopping, you know, he's, he's very much like, okay, this is your problem. <laughs> Make this work. Um, you know, and someone like Richard Moss uh, is, you know, I mean, he's absolutely one of my, my dearest friends and I, I have nothing but respect for the man. He's, he's uh, yeah, again, totally uncompromising. And I think that maybe that is the, the, the thread in there. What resonates with me is a kind of a willingness to, piss everybody off in the pursuit of the thing that you're you're kind of passionate about and so that that for me is really um it's infectious and it kind of it gets me riled up in 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 a similar way you know because I, I think I'm, for better or worse the same and so yeah just kind of looking for looking for opportunities where I know that I can kind of do what it is I want to do 
but also there's going to be a challenge in there, but a challenge that's kind of fought on, uh, you know, I'm, I, I love a good fight, but I, I want the fight to be about how to make the thing better and not more palatable. And, and that for me is really, that's the thing that I'm kind of trying to avoid at all costs is to make something shit so that it can appeal to some idea of an audience. Yeah. You know? And yeah. before we run out of time, I, I wanted to ask you about um, Ian Banks' The Wasp Factory. And yeah. you, because you, you did a, a, a musical theatre adaptation of, of that. Mm -hmm. Is there anywhere we can see it? It's actually one of the great kind of regrets of my career thus far is is that it wasn't documented properly, like visually at least. I mean, the, the music obviously was, but I mean, there's some really bad video. Yeah. Audience recordings. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. Make a film, Ben. Make a uh, film uh, of it. Indeed, indeed. You know, <laughs> maybe, maybe one day. Do maybe it. one day. Do it, because he's um, Ian was from the um, same part of Scotland as me, Fife. So um, he was our kind of our local hero, really, in terms of you know, kind of his work and what it drawn attention to our our little part of Scotland. Yeah, unfortunately, I never got to meet him. Um, he he died just around the time that it it. Uh, yeah, it, it, when we went to when I was in the Royal Opera House in in London, he 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 just died like a couple of weeks earlier. Yeah. Um, which of course, you know, when when I when I approached him to to work on it, he was very um, he was very open about it and 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 wasn't sort of against the idea at all, but also made it very clear that uh, he didn't want any involvement. Which of course I now realize in hindsight was because he was already very sick yeah. um, at that stage, and and he just. He, he said yes, and he was he was really excited about it, but he couldn't kind of take any part, which yeah. is a damn shame. A wasp walked into the ceremonial jam jar. The high tide is at 16.42. So I slipped the candles thus on the clock face. On the altar, the skull of a snake that killed Blythe. A fragment of a bomb that destroyed Paul. A piece of a fabric used to make Esmeralda's kite. Old Saul's few yellowing teeth. The wasp enters via the hole in the centre of a face where the hands would have been. From there run twelve corridors, each on a different possibility of death. Sooner or later they all choose one way or the other, and their fate is sealed. And in that fateful decision lies the message the factory is trying to tell me. Fires at twelve, signifying Paul's death. A boy blown up at noon. The spider room signifies Blythe's death by venom, and is that for a sinister kind of afternoon tea? The gents, a repository of my own fresh urine, signifies Esmeralda, who probably drowned. She's given eight for the sake of symmetry. The wasp chooses fire. He goes straight for corridor twelve. In a short while. I'm watching the blackened insect bake and crisp. Fire it is, loud and clear. What was it about the story, that, that particular story that you connected with that you, you wanted to, you know, have, have your interpretation of it? Well, I'd, I'd been approached to, 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 you know, to make a, make a work for, for the stage. And, you know, I, I, I think at that time, I just happened to be reading the book which had been given to me by a friend. I think Nico Muley had given it to me, actually. And I was reading it and I thought, well, this is this is great. I mean, I could totally work with this. And I don't know, there's there's a lot of stuff in there that really resonates with me. There's a lot of uh, 
pain and 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 sort of and and sadness in there in a very I suppose very Scottish and therefore very Australian kind of way masked with black humor and dealt with in this really yeah. kind of perversely hilarious way which you know I felt like a, a way to to write it and it, it just came out very easily. This made me want to go back and read the book it's it's been a while since I read the book so reminding myself of that it's like oh that's I'm going to dig it out and, and read that definitely over the next couple of weeks. It's a fantastic piece of writing yeah. he's he's a genius. Yeah. yeah Ben it's so great to chat to you I really appreciate your time. Of course no thank you. I hope we can uh, we can have another chat down the the road as well when there's there's some other um, other projects to talk about as well. But it's been an absolute treat and massive congratulations on on all your work so far. And I look forward to getting to chat to you again. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care. Bye. From his interpretation of Ian Banks's The Wasp Factory, that Stormfront, rounding off this first part of this week's soundtracking with composer Ben Frost. Now, as I mentioned, the score for Dark Cycle 3 is out on Invader Records today. And so to the fabulous and inspiring Rada Blank, who really is, I've got to say, a magnificent force of nature. Her film, The 40-year-old version, is absolutely brilliant, not least because of the music, which includes many a hip-hop classic. By way of example, here's Dwight by Gangster, featuring Nice and Smooth. Nice and smooth has got to be the short shot. 
never ever think of jerking me. I work too hard for my royalty. Put lead in your ass and drink a cup of tea. Beast of red alert and kick Capri. Ooh la la, ah wee wee. I say Muhammad Ali, you say Clash is clay. I say butter, you say parquet. It's alright if you wanna make a sway on my way uptown. To the deuce to the trade, I originate. They duplicate, I praise the Lord and keep the faith. It's alright, keep biting at the bait. 92, uh, one year later. Peace out, premiere, take me out with the fader. Um, listen, thank you so much for doing this. I'm excited to, to chat with you. I enjoy what you're doing in the world. So this is it's fun to be a part of it. Wow, thank you. That That's a huge compliment. Thank you so much. Um, this film that you've made is absolutely brilliant. Oh, thank you so much. I had all the emotions watching this film, actually. Like, I think everything. That always surprises me because um, as a person who was a stand-up comic for a couple of years, I realized for me, and it's what I love about, say, Christopher Guest's work, for me, the key is to not try to do anything, like to not try to make anybody feel anything, to not try to make anybody laugh. And so I really was just trying to tell my story or, or just an honest and authentic New York story. And so I'm always kind of moved when people say, oh my God, I laughed my ass off or, oh my God, I was moved I cried or whatever. And so that, it's always nice to hear that because I wasn't expecting that response. When did you, when did you know that you wanted to, to tell this story, your story in the way that you have, what was the catalyst to go and I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to write this and this is how I'm going to make it. Yeah. Um, I think like a lot of art in the world, it, it came out of frustration. Um, this podcast, exactly the same. Okay, exactly. <laughs> and uh, frustration as an engine, it could be a book. Um, and I have many tales based on that. But um, yeah, it was some adversity. I got fired off of uh, my first screenwriting job, which was a big deal because not only does it mean like getting credit and getting paid, but like I got into the union off of this job. I was adapting a book that I had loved and I submitted the first draft, they loved it. Second draft, they loved it. Third draft, not so much. And um, I, as an artist and a person who'd been working in theater and just different parts of writing had, had kind of used that muscle in different ways. I just was frustrated that it all came down to me getting kind of ousted from a job when I'd invested all of this time. And so I just decided like the next thing I do, I won't, I can't get fired from. And so <laughs> I decided to write, direct, star, produce. And initially that was a web series. Yeah. The idea was just to shoot 10 episodes. And at the same time, I was kind of crafting a mixtape that you could download once you finished the series. But two weeks before I went to shoot the series, my mom passed away. And we were best friends. She was the Sophia to my Dorothy and um, had the same birthday. And so it kind of devastated my life. And um, again, more adversity. Initially, I was going to leave storytelling, art, you know, the industry altogether because I just was like, what's the point, you know, when my biggest champion and cheerleader is not around, you know. But what I instead did was I took all of the music that I had created as a companion piece to the web series and I started going out and performing as Rodimus Prime. And it was it was a catharsis like no other because, um, you know, I had right before my mother passed away, I had just turned 40. You know, I still had a lot of questions about what it meant to be an adult woman and, and the person who I 
I wanted to answer those questions weren't here. So the, the, the live show became a way to kind of work through all that frustration around turning 40, but turning 40 without my mom and my body changing, my eyesight changing, but still like in the young, the young bloods. And so I had kind of transformed the mixtape into a live show, a live mixtape. And I performed that for two years. Um, and then eventually got back, you know, because I even went out, I, I was in the UK, I was in Norway, doing it in little cabarets here and there. When I came back and looked at the web series, it just felt too, I guess, small, you know? And so I just started transforming it into a feature. But um, that's how I ended up with the film is, you know, a web series, then two years as Rodimus Prime, and then it was a film. I encourage people, you know, watch the film, but watch the closing credits as well, because there's two brilliant pieces of footage in there, particularly. Yeah. And is that a clip from you on tour as Rodimus Prime that's in there as well? That's me performing as Rodimus Prime at Joe's Pub, you know, in, I want to say 2014, 2014, because I remember the reason that show was such a big deal is because Two days later, I moved out to LA <laughs> to start working in TV. And so this was my Rodimus Prime show in New York, my first big show in New York, and also my going away party <laughs> uh, as I moved to the West Coast. Uh, but yeah, that is actual footage from my show. And so in a way, the film becomes like an origin tale, right? Of yes. how this alter ego uh, came about. And very much like my alter ego in the film, it really did... Um, it became, um, I don't know, like a hub of safety, being that character or taking on Rodimus Prime. It really saved me from serious depression and grief, you know. And, and, and again, in a way that I'm always surprised and touched when people say, oh, I was laughing. Blah, blah, blah. I was doing the show to kind of just get this demon of grief or the fear around aging out of me. I had no idea that women, especially women of a certain age, that the show would resonate with them, you yeah. know, cause I have, I have a song called Poke Chops, which is my fat girl sex anthem. And um, I had no idea that women would be like, oh my God, thank you for that song. You, you've given women the, almost the license to laugh at themselves. Do you know what I mean? It's the most powerful thing. Yes, I know that there's a pandemic in the world, but I don't know that we should take all these other things so seriously. Bevy Smith, who is an amazing um, personality in New York, she has her own show, Bevelations. And I don't know how old this woman is. I, I, don't, I have no idea because she is eternally youthful and she always says, you know, it's greater later. And, <laughs> you know, I think about that, you know, the alternative to getting older is being dead. So <laughs> anything, anything is better than that. You know, I, when you think about it, it's like, <laughs> being dead, being 40, you know what I mean? Like that does have a resonance to it. And so now it's just like, how do we kind of give people permission to celebrate that and not feel like, because aging is never an issue with the person. It's always everyone else. When they say things like, you're how old? Oh my God, you look great. Because I guess at 40, you're supposed to look run down and, and beat up. Um, but just giving people permission to maybe laugh at themselves so that they can, just appreciate what's looking back at them in the mirror, you know, and also to encourage people to like, okay, you, you feel old, get with somebody young. That'll make you feel young real quick. <laughs>
married to a man seven years younger. Listen, hello. <laughs> that it just evens itself out. You know what I mean? As my friend used to say, it's only earth years. Listen. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I love the, I mean, there's so much about the film that I love. Just the, just the term Robopop. I spat my tea out across uh, across the living room and that was something i think i just in the moment because the actor we found out he was a little bit older than he said he was and so i was like where does this man get this because initially in the scene it's more physical between them initially archie opens the door and you see them tussling it was like more physical comedy you always have to cut things down but he really was robocop because <laughs> he was relentless and he was a flirt i think he was like very close to 80. Yeah. I didn't stop him. He still, still got had, it. <laughs> he still has some blood in his veins. And he wanted to share it with somebody, anybody. <laughs> and the scene where you're being interviewed is just the timing in that scene and the the script of how he the how rude he is in his introduction. It's just but it's and but and your reactions is is one of I just think it's a piece of comedy genius oh, in terms of that kind of how he's completely blasé about what he's what he is coming out of his mouth and the repercussions of what yeah and he's not at all like that frank delella is a real new york theater i wouldn't call him critic he's just an eye on yeah, the yeah, culture yeah. and we have the same birthday and he was really sweet to agree to be in the film he really helps to authenticate the story you know i'm it's a send up of my life and i'd say 70 percent of the film is is really me that's my apartment that's my brother that's my father's music my mom's artwork and so he really does help authenticate the the documentary element because that was really my inspiration was a lot of these films where people are kind of sending up themselves. And so Frank, who is normally a very sweet guy, I mean, to me, it's just that, that New York exchange, like we, we, people consider us ruthless, but really we're just honest. And he was, he was, he was wondering where I was. 10 years. <laughs> yeah. And then, I, but I think as well that what the film does brilliantly is it really also it addresses really important issues on on race and you know and diversity and the opportunities and there's i think that there's one line there's so much within the film but there's one line for me that really just the power of it i think is extraordinary is where um you come outside and you're with your agent and there's like we tried and the working black directors are working and that line for me just kind of it says so much in terms of what's what's wrong with the industry. Yeah, I mean, I honestly don't think I can count. I think I can count all of the uh, story decorated black theater directors, you know, working on that level on one hand. Um, I'm not quite sure how that happens when there are so many amazing directors and aspiring directors in the business, but on that level, when you're like off Broadway, but very close or maybe on Broadway, what happens, I think, and it's funny because the the film and theater industries are starting to become more and more like each other. You know, it's more risk averse, you know? So if they're going to do a show on Broadway, and I'm sure we're going to see a lot of this as Broadway comes back from COVID, you know, how do we make sure we pack the house? Let's get a celebrity. And even in terms of building the play, like, you know, you want celebrity cameos, but you want 
a recognizable name in the director. And there's so few black directors who get that opportunity on Broadway. And so what I was saying in the film was not far from the truth. And it's something that I've gone through um, as a younger theater artist, like just wanting to, nothing against any other kind of director, but I do feel like there's something to working with someone who can challenge you around some of the cultural tropes that may present itself in a play. You know, how is an older white director gonna, gonna do that? And that's why the character says that, what can, you know, Julie tell me about Harlem? She's never even lived there, you know what I mean? So it's like, just trying to be honest about the frustrations a lot of black and, and people of color, playwrights and theater makers are going through right now. Yeah, I think that there's that's what's so great about the film is it has all these kind of layers. It has that wonderful entertainment ability, but then there are lots of, of very important conversations that are being had throughout the, the script and the narrative. I think you've done an extraordinary job. Thank you. How was it writing, directing, acting and producing? <laughs> um, hold on, let me call my therapist and they can... Um... <laughs> You get her on speed dial and she'll tell you. Um, it was insane. It was, I remember being on set the very first day. The very, very, very first scene that we shot was that scene where Archie and I are on the bench at the park and I'm going to tell him I'm doing the mixtape. That's the very first scene that we shot. And I remember being out there. Um, the whole crew is kind of standing around and we're about to shoot. And all of a sudden, my... So we have like these two butt cheeks, right? Buttocks. And there's a crack in the middle. My butt became so tight that I think I fused them together and there was no crack. Like I was so like, what did you, like, I'm smiling. I'm trying to be the leader. And inside the narrative is like, you're fucking crazy. Oh my God. Why did you decide to do this? You're going to be in your own film. You're an idiot. That was my thought as I was saying, action, you know what I mean? Um, but I, for some, somehow, some way I found the fortitude to move forward. I had a great uh, DP in Eric Bronco, who was like my second eye. To me, the hardest job as a, or the most important job as a director is the cast, hiring your cast. And I work with Jessica Daniels, who is also a native New Yorker. So there was this like Eric, there was this investment in making this New York film, you know, for uh, as New York natives. And I just surrounded myself with people who could help me in doing the heavy lifting. And then at times I had to tell one part of myself to sit down, you know, like we'd be in a scene together and the screenwriter's like, you know, I don't, and I said, oh, no, thank you. No, no, no. You did your job. You won a couple of awards too. So you can just sit your ass down right over there and shut the fuck up because you've done your job. Can the actor and director do? And then, you know, Clark Johnson was one of my advisors at Sundance and he's an actor who's also been in films and TV that he's directed. And he gave me some good advice. He said, do me a favor when you're in the scene, whatever you do, make sure you remain the actor, not the director, because you'll be in a scene where you deliver a line to an actor. And then when they respond, your face does something like this while you're in the scene. <laughs> and so I had to just, I had to compartmentalize. That's all, you know, I'm shocked sometimes when I look at the film and I'm still laughing at things, you know, I'm like, oh, wow, we did something right. But at some point you're just like, what am I going to do? Tell everybody go home. So <laughs> I just kept going. I just kept going. Like, I hope this works out. And I think it did. Oh, it so does. It's so beautiful as well. It just looks 
stunning. It really does. Thank you. Yeah, that's Eric Bronco, the DP, Nat Jenks at um, Goldcrest in New York. We did color correction. And I really was obsessed with this with the aesthetic because people have done New York black and white films before, but this was our version of it. And um, Roy DeCarava is a photographer who I studied, black photographer who shot black life in the 50s and 60s in black and white. Mm-hmm. And in that, in his work, you just see all these beautiful shades of gray. And so I always use people's skin tone from mine to Peter Kim, who plays Archie and Oswin, to kind of just make sure we were all popping on the screen. And, and just, I wanted people's mouths to water, you know, when looking at the yeah. image. And so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the wonderful kind of textures that you get as well. Like, I love that scene where you are kind of riffing in the mirror in your apartment. And we're looking at you from behind. So we see the, but we see, and just the kind of, all those sort of little kind of um, like smudges and, and. Yeah. And that's all, you know, that's my apartment in New York. I live in New Beautiful. York. Beautiful. Thank you. It's, it's a little room that I've had for like 10 years. So I have lived that New York life. And um, one of the other, two of the other artists who inspired me are Carrie James Marshall, the painter, and Carrie Mae Weems, the photographer. And, you know, Carrie James Marshall, I call him the mirror. Mm. Um, often the Black figures in his films are, in his paintings, I'm sorry, are their skin tone is an opaque midnight Black. And it's so dark that it almost becomes a reflection of the person looking into it. So I call him the mirror. And then Carrie Mae Weems, her photography, to me, is one of the first time I saw a woman, a Black woman, use herself as a subject in a film, but a a contemplative self, you know, so someone who's looking at themselves and trying to understand who they are. Because at the same time, I'm trying to say that at 40 and beyond, you can still have these moments of self-discovery, you know? So here's a person who's looking at themselves. Sometimes her reflection is obscured. Sometimes it's smudgy. Sometimes it's clear or blocked or whatever. And so um, thank you for seeing that because that was my intention is to show that there are things in the way of her reflection. You mentioned your dad's music and the music in the film is kind of, it's got such a beautiful rhythm to it as well. And um and your dad was a jazz drummer, is that right? Yes, he was a percussionist. And um, he was trained by the best of them, Art Blakey, who is a jazz legend. And um, he played with everyone from Walter Davis. So he's on, uh, I want to call it a Patch of Blue soundtrack from the 60s, a Sidney Poitier movie. He played with uh, Sun Ra. He was in the orchestra. You know, he... One of my favorite scenes in the film is at the very end when I go to my mom's apartment and I finally confront my brother, which in turn means I'm confronting my mom's death. Um, As I walk in, that's my father's music playing. And he was a member of this jazz uh, quartet called um, Melodic Art uh, Quartet. And that's his music playing. That's my mother's artwork and that's my brother. So we're all in one room together in the film, which in in my heart feels like an archive. Um, But Initially, that song wasn't in there. I wanted to use the song Stomp by the Brothers Johnson because it's my brother's favorite song. And so I kind of wanted to surprise him with it.
And then my wonderful music supervisor, Guy Rute, who's been my friend for years and is, he just is like a hip hop guru. You know, he's been an artist, he's been a manager, he's been an executive. It was his idea to put electric relaxation in the beginning of the film. told me how much it would cost to use <laughs> five seconds of the song. I said, well, you know, maybe now isn't the time to become, to be that sister, to be nostalgic and be sweet. And I was like, wait a minute, we're already using my dad's music in the scene where I'm looking through my clothes. That's the melodic art tech playing. And um, I just said to God, maybe we should just find a little piece of my dad's music. And that, that wasn't, there wasn't the plan to have the whole family in the scene, but that's how it ended up. And I, I'm finding with creating art on this scale and as, as a filmmaker, there are all these beautiful mistakes that happen, <laughs> you know? So I got to honor my pops in that moment, him and my mother both being, I guess sometimes in my opinion, a little more obscure than I think they would have liked to as artists. And so the film, you know, it's a love letter to New York, but also to them and other Black artists of their time. I grew up in on the south side of uh, Williamsburg, uh, at Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And it was a community that my parents, uh, an artist community that they kind of helped to, to create, you know, like uh, musicians, artists, activists, all moved to the south side of Williamsburg and they rehabbed all of these dilapidated lofts and storefronts and created this intentional Black artist community. And so I, having my parents in the film, um, it's about them, but it's also paying homage to all of the Black artists who raised me and my brother. That's amazing. What a lovely kind of way to cement, cement that relationship as well within your film. It's beautiful. You know, and you've got a couple of really great tracks as well. Um, Gangstar featuring Nice and Smooth's in there and, and Quincy Jones track as well. It's just like, oh, it's like putting on a like comfortable pair of slippers, that song. It's like, oh, yeah, I feel like. Yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, that Quincy Jones song, I have to give a shout out to my friend um, Tash Mosley. We were driving around L.A. one day and that Love and Peace by Quincy Jones. Now, I like to consider myself a jazz aficionado and I'm such a fan of Quincy Jones because he has created work for cinema and TV in a way that I don't think any other composer has. And so we're driving around LA and that song comes on. I was like, what is that? This is years ago. I was like, what is that? And he turns up, he said, you don't know this song? And I immediately, there was no, I didn't even have financing for the movie yet, but I knew this had to be in my film because as much as, the film celebrates hip hop. 
you know, I just feel like you can't tell a New York story in black and white without having jazz in there. And that moment, that song, I was like, I don't quite know what the final image is. I just know this has to be a part of it. And I kept playing the song over and over again and seeing different ways that Rada and Dee could come together at the end. The thing that wasn't the question was the music. And so Guy Rute, because we worked together on the film, he, I'm just backtracking a little bit, but like in terms of Dee's beats, like I needed it to sound like it was authentic and it was from Brooklyn. And so I was like, yeah, find me. You know, I, I wanted to sound like something Sean Price, rest uh, rest in peace, Sean Price, one of Brooklyn's finest MCs, something that he would rhyme over. And so he found me Crisis and the Beat Miners who were, Crisis is from um, North Carolina, but um, the Beat Miners are from Brooklyn and they helped to create this Brooklyn sound in the nineties. And so when it came to the Quincy Jones track, the beat miners did like a hip hop version of it. And it's perfect. I mean, it's just perfection. And, um, you know, like people are always like, where's the soundtrack? We're I mean, we're gonna do some things, trust me. There's gonna be a, a companion to the piece. It might be a live show, I'm not quite sure. Oh yes, please come to UK with it. Oh, I would love to, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And I just also in this moment, I just wanna say how, how appreciative I am of the UK's love of the film. Again, you know, you're not sitting down writing and struggling to get the money for a film to say, oh, I wanted to blah, blah, blah. But I love that people in the UK love the film. And I'm, I'm not surprised in a way because when it comes to music, you guys like hold it down. I feel like Europe and UK especially is why or how a lot of jazz artists got to maintain careers is because there's such an appreciation for live music, jazz music, hip hop there. So um, I can't wait to come there and meet the folks who've helped to keep it alive, keep the movie alive in the UK. But I hope I answered the question uh, about that, that Quincy, Quincy Jones, Jones song. Yeah. Then this, these brilliant performances that we have of you and some of the other cast, you know, kind of performing hip hop, you know, I don't know, how does, is, is that an easy thing to do within the narrative of a film? Well, one thing that I realized, I didn't realize this as I was casting it, is so many of the actors are rappers. Imani Wilson, who plays Elaine, goes by Mocha Bands. Antonio, who plays Waldo, is a, is a hip hop artist. Mina Jew, who plays the young lady hosting the show, was a big hip hop artist in Oakland. Like, um, and then Oswin Benjamin, who plays D, is a phenomenal MC. And um, when it came to casting him, you know, I did this with um, Jessica Daniels, who uh, she's a casting person in New York. Yeah. We helped to find. She helped me to kind of find like authentic New York voices. But when it came to D, I knew. 
I wanted it to be someone who was like me, didn't have a whole lot of training. And Oswin has never acted a day in his life. Like I still don't believe it, but the first time he ever read dramatic dialogue was in my audition for the no movie. No way. Mm, he's never acted. And so I wanted someone who like me may have had some ability around acting was natural, but didn't have any training. Because the thing I find is like with a lot of actors, you know, when it's time for them to play an urban role, sometimes they've had that street edge trained out of them. Yeah. And so I wanted someone who was raw and kind of, I'd be equally yoked with. And, and Oswin is, is, I feel, I really feel like he's going to break out and become this star, you know, because he's, he has such, raw talent. And I, I'm always saying to him, like, be careful not to get too much training because you have this beautiful yeah. gift. Like he's a, you know, Anjanu Ellis to me is one of my favorite actors because she's a great listener. And that's what he is. He knows how to receive and then respond based on what he received. Um, but yeah, I feel like so many of the actors in the film are New Yorkers. And there was this investment, like, oh, we get to do our version of a New York story, you know? Um, so whether they were rappers or not, they just came with a passion. You know, we didn't have a huge budget. I think Lena, uh, Lena Wade being attached as a uh, producer helped to excite people. But at the end of the day, like, you know, you, people have to make a decision about like what kind of roles they want to play. And it was a risk for all of us. This is me, first time feature director. No one had really seen, I have a, a hip hop video online, but nobody really saw my work. And so we all were kind of jumping in head first, but with that excitement of like knowing in our hearts, this was something special. Um, so that's what I think you're seeing show up in the film. It's just like people's passion for New York and this kind of story. It's an authentic reaction, I think, to to what you've written in this beautiful, beautiful story that you've told. Um, Thank you. Rada, it's such a treat to get to chat to you. It really is. Same here. Same here. I love what you're doing in the world. And I'm honored when I see all the people who've, who've sat and spoke with you. And I'm like, oh, and I get to share some time with Edith. This is awesome. Oh, well, God bless you. I was just, um, I know you worked with Spike Lee on She's Gotta Have It on the, and we had Terrence Blanchard on uh, about a month ago. I mean, the loveliest man in, the, I mean, I could have talked to him for hours and he was so generous and so open and, what a wonderful human being he is as well. Listen, I have to just say really quickly, Malcolm X is one of my favorite films ever. And the reason part of it is because of the music. There's a scene, I think the song is called Fruit of Islam, when Denzel as Malcolm X has all of the men behind him at the precinct and Peter Boyle is, is the commissioner cop and he's telling them to go away. And there is this, that song plays in the background and it's like a march, you know, it is... I mean, you want to talk about a marriage between cinema and music. I think that Spike is genius that he's engaged this this musical, oh my God, brilliance in Terrence Blanchard. That's amazing. Like, I'm obsessed with him. He's great.
literally my feet were like doing that the whole time I was chatting to him. I was just like literally exploded inside. It was just like, oh my God. But I think that you see um, within your film how important music is to your world because it's got a beautiful rhythm and the way that you weave the music in and out as well you can you can see that you respect it and you really hold it dear i love it i mean one i am a musician i was raised by a musician a struggling a jazz musician but music you know when i think about what it means to be like a young person and you're going to school and stuff like that like i was a person who i, I didn't get A's and B's unless it was something performance related or English and so I feel like music is another place where young people especially can uh share their genius with the world you know but the but the film for me you know I, I feel like this happens to a lot of first-time filmmakers like we put everything in there and I just felt like I, I have to have this sound for D, but then I want to pay homage to the hip hop of the golden age that raised me. So you got Queen Latif in there, who is a huge influence on my life. I remember being a teenager and seeing her on TV and being like, wait, that woman looks like me, you know, and she's not over sexualized, like she's very strong and powerful. So I had to have her in there. unwrapped hidden beach version of stakes is high by de la soul and then the electric relaxation just these three moments that kind of tell the audience where i come from the music that kind of enlivened me and that i want to you know one of the biggest compliments i get on the film is that people think it takes place in the 90s and it doesn't it's a current story in the aughts you know but the music does and the black and white of it all, I think, kind of seal New York in this time capsule through the eyes of someone who in the 90s, like that's when hip hop to me was its most fertile and rich and diverse and varied, you know, um, and artists and, and Guy helped me to articulate this. At the time, hip hop was still on the fringe, yeah. you know, like it was still a disruptor's game, or it was still about rebel music. It wasn't really about huge stardom and people having multi-million dollars sell out tours and stuff, you know? And so that's why I think we've become so romantic or nostalgic about hip hop from the nineties, because it was, it was still like, I don't know, it was fresh. It was raw. It was unapologetic. It was still very varied. And it wasn't like, consumerism didn't dictate what it did, you know? So that's why I'm so romantic. It's the authentic purpose of what it was, yeah, it's... Yes, and that's what that's what the character does. She goes back to that person who, you know, at 
13, 14, 15, you know, kids at that age, they know everything. They know who they're going to be. They're going to, and then adulthood and responsibilities corrupt all of that. Fucks you up. Yeah, it does. It totally does. Yeah. And um, Rada, thank you so much for your time. And I, I oh, thank you, Edith. This was great. When we get to uh, you know to travel, that you you get across here, and I'll be first in line to 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 see that show as well. I would love that. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Massive congratulations on the film, and lovely for, to have time with you. Thanks so much, Rada. Take care. Same here. All right. Take care. Stay safe. Bye. Back to the 40-year-old version, that's the unwrapped mix of Stakes is High by Della Soul, rounding off the second part of soundtracking with Rada Blank. My huge thanks to Rada and indeed Ben Frost for taking the time to talk to us. Both the 40-year-old version and Dark are available to watch right now on Netflix, with Ben's scores for Dark available via Invader Records. Now we'll put up a Spotify playlist for both guests via edithbowman.com, which is also the place to catch up with all of our previous episodes, including my conversations with the Invader Boys and Terence Blanchard. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We're at Soundtracking UK. And please do check out that companion piece to the podcast I put up on YouTube, where you can see lots of extras of our interviews with Ben and Rada. Next up, another double whammy. And it's all about the ladies. We have the fabulous Alison Bree, who a lot of you will know, of course, from the fabulous Glow and her time on Community. Uh, Alison's taken a step into directing and in documentary format as part of this brilliant new project, part of Marvel Films, which you'll hear her talk about next week. And joining Alison, very happy to be welcoming Sofia Coppola back onto Soundtracking. Now, just as a bit of self-promo, uh, I've got a special show with Sofia called Life Cinematic, which is a series that I've been doing for BBC Four. And Sofia is the latest episode where she picks the most wonderful collections of films and specific scenes in those films that have inspired her that is going to be on bbc4 on wednesday the 25th of november at 10 p.m but if you can't watch it then it will be up on the iplayer so sophia and alison next week's guests i very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then in the meantime stay safe